Thank you for downloading the following message from the Pickerington Church of Christ. We pray that this message will be a blessing to you as you walk with the Lord. For more information or to find additional resources, locate us on the web at pickeringtonchurch.org. Enjoy the message. Good morning, everyone. Yes, Rodney, I was trying to go a little incognito today to see if uh, somebody else would jump up here and do this, but uh, I didn't see any volunteers. Just kidding. I, I want to say so much, um, but I'll have to restrain myself a little bit to say how much I'm appreciative of your kindness, your patience, your support uh, for me, for Lisa, for my family. Um, I want to publicly say uh, thank you very much to our elders here who have been overly gracious too kind, um, incredibly patient, supportive of me and my family during this time, um, encouraged me to take the time that I needed to get healthy, uh, to feel a little bit better, and um, quite honestly, I wanted to preach today just because I kind of missed preaching. <laughs> I didn't know what to do, and um, uh, this past week I've been able to read some more and spend some time vertically, so uh, I was uh, looking forward to being here today. And also, we got to get Isaiah finished because we got other plans this year. So we got two more sermons today and next week. We're going to be in Isaiah 65 today and Isaiah 66 next week. In Isaiah chapter 65 and Isaiah chapter 66 are a combination of probably one of the most poignant and powerful responses that God could give to a cry for help. Unfortunately, we're not going to be able to preach chapter 64. I encourage you to go check that chapter out. You should read it today. Um, I'll warn you now, if you read Isaiah chapter 64, it's going to sound like a prayer that you and I should be praying today. Isaiah is speaking vicariously for the whole nation of Israel in Isaiah chapter 64. When he prays to God, God, will you please please do something the whole world has gone amok it's crazy he's saying nobody seeks after you the whole world's a mess nobody is obeying you god the morals are messy the ethics are misunderstood the whole world has lost its mind nobody is coming after you god and what we need is for your presence to tear open the heavens to come down upon earth and shake us to our core, to wake us up to your reality again. Now, I'll warn you this. That is the kind of prayer that we as believers should be praying. Not just, God, we help us uh, make things a little bit better, but God, we want your presence. And the unfortunate thing, or fortunate thing, however you uh, look at it, is when God's presence shows up, He's incredibly revealing. And at this point, God seems distant. The world seems like it's falling apart. Nothing is going right. In Isaiah 64, he cries out, God, please fix it. In chapter 65, God tells them exactly how. Now, I want to tell you this one truth, that even though there are times when God seems like he's far away, that he's distant, God is never far away. The distance that you and I sense from God is only caused 
by our sin, which isolates us from God. Isaiah 59 tells us this when he says, Your sins have separated you from your God. Your iniquities keep you at a distance from him. Isaiah 65 does for us, pardon me, I should say it this way. In Isaiah 65, God does what we wish every person would do. God reveals himself fully to us. He tells us exactly what he is thinking. Wouldn't that be great, right? If we could actually hear what people are thinking and understand what people are thinking. God tells us in Isaiah 65 exactly what he is thinking. And he tells us exactly what he is going to do. There is nothing hidden with God. You have complete transparency. Isaiah 65, God shows us both his mind and his mission what he's thinking and what he's going to do he uses a phrase that's going to frame out our sermon this morning it's pretty simple and God like any good preacher has three points in this chapter there's three times that God uses the word behold now you've probably heard the word behold throughout scripture in many different places I'll, I'll reference a few here in a little bit but the word behold shows up a lot in scripture And what God is saying when he says the word behold is this I want you to look but not just glance or just see but I want you to look in a way that you contemplate until you understand what I'm trying to show you like a great artist who maybe paints a beautiful picture and it's hanging in a museum and you walk up and you look at that piece of art and you stand there and you look at it and you look at it and you look at it for a long period of time until you begin to understand what the artist is trying to communicate. Or like a great song or a good book when you really get into thinking about and contemplating what was this person trying to communicate. When God says, behold, he wants you to think. And there's three times he says it. Let me give you the first one. It's in verse 1 when he says, I was sought by those who did not ask. I was found by those who did not seek me. I said, here I am. Now the English is translating, here I am. You might have, here am I, or here am I, or lo, or behold. What it's really saying there when he says, here I am, God is saying, here's what I said, here I am. The original core word is actually God saying, behold, look, it's me. And the first thing God wants you to know in this behold is this. God is saying, I always, always want to be found and I can always be found. He says, I was sought by those who didn't ask. I was found by those who didn't even seek me. Now, if we're honest with ourselves, I think we could all agree that there are times it, it seems hard to find God, hard to be connected to God. It seems hard for us at times as humans to be close to God or intimate with God. Now, that difficulty is a product of our fallen and sinful world. You see, our sin, not just in us, but in the world, our weaknesses make intimacy with God something that's very hard. Not because he's hiding from us, but because we have something to hide. That's our sin. It makes us squeamish in his presence. It makes us uncomfortable. It makes us maybe at times want to have access to his benefits, but not necessarily be close to him 
relationally. And so God says, I want you to come. This statement that God says, I want to be found and I can always be found, brings some questions to it. First of all, who do you think can find him? Now verse 1 tells us something interesting about who can find him. And the answer is this. It is always the least expected. You see, humans have a way of looking at things, seeing things, um, about the way that we look at uh, who is religious, who is right, who is good, who is not. And God says over and over and over, it's always going to surprise you. It's always going to expect you. He would tell the most religious of the society in his day that the tax collectors, the harlots, walk into the kingdom before you ever smell the doorframe. He's saying that those people that you would never expect who will cross the threshold into the kingdom are the ones who actually do. He says there in verse 1, I was sought by those who did not ask and found by those who did not seek me. He goes on to say, I said, here I am to a nation that did not call upon my name, specifically to the Israelites. He's referencing that the Gentiles will be ones who find him. But generically speaking, God is found by those who we oftentimes least expect. So that means two things. One, if you are today one of his people, if you are God's child today, we should never, ever think, oh, that person will never become a Christian. That should never enter into the mind of a believer, that that person could never become a Christian. They've done too much, they've said too much, they've thought too much, they've lived too hard. You and I, as believers in Jesus Christ, if this is true, should never look at another soul and say, there's no possible way that that person could ever become a Christian. The least it's expected, God tells us over and over. The second thing is this. If you are not a believer in Jesus Christ today, or maybe you're not sure you are, and maybe you look at yourself and say, there's no way I could ever belong with that group or in that religious company. There's no way I could ever be one of God's people because I'm not X enough, good enough, smart enough, like religious enough. You should never ever think that because you and I can become believers in Jesus Christ. So the next question is this, not only who, but how do you find him? And the answer is buried inside of that word. That word is behold, which I've mentioned means to gaze at, to look at until you understand him. You see, I want you to think about this. When your life gets kind of desperate and difficult, when you are driven not just to nominal prayer, but to real, earnest, crying out to God prayer, what do you usually pray for? When your life is so like shaken up and you've got to pray, what do you usually pray for? Now, I can't speak for you because I don't know exactly what you pray for, but I can tell you about myself. Usually when my life is driven by desperation to prayer, what I usually end up praying for are things like, I want my circumstances to change. I want what I'm in right now to be different. Or I pray, God, I want an outcome to be determined. Here's what I'd like to happen, God. I'd like this thing to take place. I'd like this thing to happen. And so I usually, when I'm driven to real prayer, want circumstances to change or outcomes to be determined, or I want the will of other people to be shifted. That's usually how I end up praying to God. Change this outcome, change this circumstance, change this person. And God, in our most desperate moment, when we need him, here's what he says. 
I don't always offer you circumstances to change or outcomes to be different. What I offer you is myself. In a broken and fallen and difficult and desperate world, God offers himself. He says, here I am. I'm actually the thing you need. Behold me. Come get me. Having me, what he's trying to say is, regardless of your circumstances, regardless of your outcomes, having God makes it okay. Things are not perfect in this life, and God says, I'm going to fix that. That's point number three today. God is going to fix that. But you can have me, and that's enough. Now listen to this. Here is the brilliance of God. The unbelievable divine wisdom of God that you and I could never probably think of. You see, in a broken and sinful world, we might look at it and say, oh my goodness, what are we going to do now? Scrap the whole thing. This is wasted. All my efforts ruined. But God looks at it differently. In a broken and fallen world where circumstances do go bad and outcomes don't come to us the way that we want them to and people in our lives sometimes are really difficult and it's unfair. God doesn't just say the way to fix this is to change circumstances, people, and outcomes. He says, I will use the brokenness to teach you that I'm all you've ever really needed. Do you get that? So in this broken world, God says, yes, your circumstances are hard. I'm not denying that. Yes, your outcomes, I can understand you wanting them to be different. Yes, if that person were different or out of your life, your life might be easier. I get it. God's saying, I understand that. But I'm going to use the weakness, brokenness, and sinfulness of this world to drill into your and my hard mind that I'm the only thing you've ever needed so that when the world's perfect, you won't forget it. Do you get that? How brilliant is God? I could never have thought of that. He's so smart, you know? He just, like, he just solves things that I could never solve. And so he says, behold me. Now, how do you and I do that? In John chapter 1, the apostle John tells us exactly how. He says, in the beginning was the Word, the Word of God, the power of God to make things happen. He says, the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The Word was God himself. And chapter, four, chapter 1, verse 14 says this, then the Word became flesh. The Son of God became flesh, and he dwelt among us. Jesus Christ God himself became human in the flesh. And he said this, the word became flesh and we beheld his glory. Meaning we looked at him. We handled him. We stared at him until we understood him. And the glory, we beheld his glory, the glory of the only begotten, full of grace and truth. And he says in verse 18, no one has ever seen God at any time except for the Son. He has seen God. And the Son declares God to us. Meaning this, that if you get into the Gospels and you understand the nuances and the twists and the turns and the curves and understand all the details of the stories and you stare at and think about and contemplate and understand Jesus, you know exactly who God is. Let me give you an example. There's a story when Jesus finds out about his dear friend and relative, John the Baptist, being killed. And he loved John. He dearly loved John. And Jesus, as a human, because he's heartbroken over John, goes into the mountains, into the hills, to be by himself and to pray. And guess what the crowd does? On a day that he's grieving, they start barking at him. 
<laughs> they want him to heal their diseases and fix their problems and they're barking and they're, they're, they're yapping at his heels and Jesus comes down off the mountain and what does he do on the day that he's grieving when he just needs a moment to be sorrowful over John the Baptist dying what does Jesus do when people are bringing their requests to them does he yell at them does he say give me a break does he say get out of here he patiently receives them and serves them now watch this that's a story of Jesus now think about it if Jesus is representing to you who God is is there ever a time in your life when God says don't pray to me do you see that Jesus at the end of his life comes to the upper room that they have prepared for him there's no servants it's intimate and he walks in and all 12 of the disciples are around the table laying down on their arm probably their good arm and uh, eating some food all right and Jesus comes in and nobody's washing feet and you can't eat till you start washing feet. And he takes off his robe and he puts on the servant's towel and he gets a basin of water and he goes to all of them quietly, doesn't say a word, and just starts washing feet like a servant. Is there ever a time God will not come to you and serve in what you need? Ever. So do you see, when you stare at Jesus and learn about Jesus and look at Jesus and understand Jesus, what he's telling you is this is exactly who God is. And behold who he is. Who can find him? Anyone. How do you find him? You look at him. Last question. Why in the world does Jesus want to be found? God, why does he want to be found? If you read this text that John read with us, he said, the way you're acting is like smoke in my nose. You ever had that happen to you? It's horrible. You stand there, you know, and some of you probably say that old phrase, smoke follows beauty. It doesn't, Craig. <laughs> and you get that smoke in your mouth and your nose, and you're like, it's awful. And it makes you move, right? It makes you get up, and you're holding your picnic table or your, your plate of food, and you got, you got to move because you just don't want that in your nose. God says, the way you act sinfully is like smoke in my nose. So why in the world would God want to be found by a people that he says it's like smoke in my nose this is probably one of the hardest things for us to understand I think this is the reality that Satan twists in our minds so often like really gets down like we don't acknowledge it yes on the surface we say we're saved by grace God loves us we quote John three sixteen, but deep like it was to go the 18 inches from here to here we don't always understand like why would God want to actually be found by us why would he go to these lengths to save us and to be one with us. You see, it's because of this. God is actually the perfect one. He has perfected the old adage that says, love sinners and hate sin. You, you've probably heard that before. You've probably said it. You know, we're supposed to love the sinner and hate the sin. Now, again, I can't speak for you. I can only speak for myself. How good are you at that? I, for one, am really terrible at that. When somebody sins against me and hurts me or hurts my family, man, you know what I feel towards them? I don't really love them that much in that moment. You know, I'm struggling with that. Like, like when they do something behaviorally wrong, oftentimes what I fall into is actually hating that person, being angry at that person, being frustrated at that person, thinking if I could just get rid of that person, things would be better. And so I'm kind of terrible at this whole love the sinner and hate the sin thing. I'm really bad at it. God is excellent at it. It's kind of strange. 
How does God feel about sinners? Have you ever wondered that? Go back just a couple pages. And I'll tell you nice, you don't freak out. I'm just going to do point one today. <laughs> Go back a couple pages to chapter 62. And if there's a verse that I want you to take your pencil, your pen, and I want you to underline, it's okay to do that in the Bible. If there's a verse that I want you to commit to memory, a verse that I want you to drill into your brain week after week, Isaiah 62, verse 5, listen to this. After, you remember the apex of chapter 53, 54, and 55 were the substitutional sacrificial death of Jesus is talked about and what God is uh, opening up for us, the invitation of salvation. He says in chapter 62, verse 5, For as a young man marries a young woman, so your sons will marry you. Now listen to this last part of the verse. And as a groom rejoices over his bride, so your God will rejoice over you. So if you ever wonder, what does God think about us? How does God feel about us? Some of you have probably been to a wedding before, right? Maybe this summer. Have you done your wedding tour yet? Been to several weddings? You sit down, you watch the wedding, and you see that typically the groom at the front, and he's standing there, and he's waiting for the bride to come down the aisle. God says the way that that groom anticipates and is excited about and is thrilled with and overjoyed and overcome with emotion about the bride coming to him so that they could go from two to one flesh. He said, that's what I want you to see in that picture is exactly how I feel about reuniting with sinners. If you ever, ever wonder how God feels about sinners, he says, just like the groom feels for his bride, so your God towards you. But... How does God feel about sin? You see, this is the good thing about God. He is, loves us and cares for us. Like a groom loving a bride says, I love you, but God is not desperate. He is not starving for attention. Meaning that he will not lower his values or give up on his integrity to have us. That's what it means to be desperate. To want somebody so bad that you lower your standards just to have somebody want you back. In that case, you're being used, by the way, young ladies. And don't let yourself be in that position. God says, I love you. And I want you. I want us to go from two to one. I want us to be reunited for all eternity. But I will not lower my standards. I will not reduce or release my integrity. And he says, absolutely, if you read in verse 2, I spread out my hands all day long to a rebellious people who walk in the path that is not good, following their own thoughts. These people continually anger me to my face, sacrificing in gardens and burning incense on brick, meaning like other religious activities. They sit among the graves and they spend nights in secret places, eating the meat of pigs and polluting and putting polluted broth in their bowls. Here's what they're doing. This first group of people, the religious people, are adding to the religion. And here's what they say in verse 5. To God, keep to yourself. Don't come near to us, God. I'm too holy for you. Can you believe that? You see... The people that God will ultimately reject, 
They come in two forms, but they've got the same problem. Form one is the religious. Might shock you a little bit, but it's the religious. God says those who add to this religion, they go out and they get all these spiritual things and they do all these different things and they end up being so self-centered and arrogant about it that they actually think God is saying what we would never say out of our own mouth, that they don't need God. They've got it figured out. And God says it's like smoke in my nose. But if you go down to verse 11, listen to this group. He says, you who abandon the Lord, who forget my holy mountains, who prepare a table for fortune and and fill bowls with mixed wine for destiny, I will destine you for the sword and all of you will kneel down to be slaughtered because I called and you did not answer. I spoke and you did not hear. You did what was evil in my sight and chose what I did not delight in. You see, there's two forms of the same problem. One form is the religious form. Those people that look religious and act religious, but in their heart think that they don't need God. The other side is the irreligious. Those who pursue finding desires in life outside of and away from God, they look at God and see restriction and choking them out. Like, if I go with God, my life will be terrible and boring, so I'm going to go and live life away from God. Now, irreligious and religious people have the same central problem. That same central problem is this. They don't feel like they need God. They are self-directed, self-made, self-serving. And here's the unfortunate thing. God saying, I'm available and always can be found, will not force anybody to come to him. It's an invitation, not a demand. And so he says this, ultimately, I will let you have what you want. If what you want is self-made, self-directed, self-centered, self-serving, self-righteous living, if that's what you want, whether you're religious or irreligious, if that's what you want, ultimately, here's what hell is. God's saying, I give you exactly what you want. Self without me. Life without me. But what God is ultimately trying to offer you is life with him. And he's going to solve this problem, this problem of sin, this problem of a broken world, ultimately at the end by saying he's going to create a whole new world, a whole new place. And I'll talk more about this next week, but ultimately know this. What God wants to fill you with is the most modest, the most simple, and yet the fullest delights you could ever want. He wants to give you the things that you always really want, like joy and satisfaction, security, rewarding effort intimacy with him peace those are the kind of things that he wants to give you and he says the place where you and i meet and that happens he calls it his holy mountain or other places he calls it zion which means the place where we meet together with god and on that mountain you and i could be reunited with god we can be connected to god again we can have all these things that he wants us to have and we can be forgiven of all the sin that we have committed which ultimately means that we deserve to be separated from him but how do we get to that mountain we get to that mountain because jesus walked to another mountain you see at the end of his life he didn't walk up the mount zion he walked up a different mountain it was called golgotha the place of the skull and when he walked up that mountain he carried one thing and one thing only and that thing was the cross that belonged to you and belonged to me the curse for sin that you and i deserve to carry he carried up that mountain and he left it there 
He died on the cross that you and I deserve to die on, left that cross that you and I were supposed to bear on that mountain, went into the grave and came back alive again. And when he raised, the Bible tells us that we were offered justification for our sins now. We can be forgiven and reunited with God so that we can be clean slate, reunited to as one, and have this life with him again. But the choice is yours. God is laying out for you. Behold, I want you to see that I want to be found and you can always find me. It's the least expected of you that will find me. You find it by looking at Jesus and knowing Jesus and seeing who Jesus is. And he wants to be found because he wants to have you. And the choice is yours. Let's stand and sing the song. If you need help, you can come and let's sing.